discussion goes, you know, the rope fixers are supposed to finish tomorrow. If they finish tomorrow, and if you guys can get a good enough weather window, you might be able to summit and come back down, and that would put you in place to get down and out in 14 days. But we don't know if they'll finish. We don't know if the weather will be any good. And you'd have to go from camp two because, you know, that's where you're at right now. And that's the only way you'd be able to get to the summit and down in time. And not only that, you'd have to leave much later in order to give the rope fixers time to get up there before you. So the later you leave, the later you summit. And the later you summit, the better chance that like bad weather is going to come in. On any mountain, you don't want to be up there in the afternoon, right? Like in general, you just want to get down before bad weather rolls in. Inspiration and information for athletes by athletes. It is the Goo Energy Labs Pinnacle Podcast. I'm Fatty of the Leadville Podcast, the Silka Marginal Gains Podcast, and FatCyclist.com. And I am Yuri Housewell, Goo Energy Labs Elite Athlete Manager, and I do a bunch of community outreach as well and uh, pedal a bike here and there. What are you doing here with me, man? Uh, I'm in Leadville, Colorado. Uh, We're taping this live out in the woods, kind of in Fatty's cabin. Uh, and we're about to talk to Roxanne Vogel. Yeah. Roxanne is the nutrition and performance research manager. Roxy, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me out. Oh, it is such an honor to have you here. And it is a perfect place to talk with Roxy because we are at around 10,000 feet, which to me feels like high altitude. And to you probably seems like a day at the beach. Yeah, I mean, this is what I normally sleep at at night and hang out at in my chamber at work. So, I mean, we're right at home right now. We are going to need to yeah. unpack yeah. that. Just to, to to front load a little bit to the audience out there, we're going to be talking to Roxanne about her lightning ascent of Everest. But we wanted to start first, Rox, with when did you first fall in love with like mountaineering in the mountains? I mean, it, it's had to have been a you know, decades-long progression for you to build the skills to accomplish what you did just recently. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really kind of funny because I grew up in San Diego. Um, I was a total beach kid and my family was not into going camping or not going to like, you know, do outdoorsy things like hiking. So, um, you know, it wasn't until college that I really got into the outdoors. I had been studying abroad in Peru and we did the trek to Machu Picchu. And so I kind of fell in love with just trekking at that point and like, being in the mountains. And eventually I found my way to Nepal and I was doing the trek up to Everest base camp through Nepal. Um, and so I got to base camp there at like 17,000 feet. This is back in 2012. So like seven years ago. Hmm. And I looked up and I saw the mountain and I was just like, man, I really need to be climbing these things and not just kind of like walking around them, you know? Um, so at that point I was supposed to be going back to North Carolina, which is where I was living. And I was supposed to be starting grad school. Like I had a full ride scholarship for exercise physiology. I was like registered for classes for the fall. Um, this is like a couple months ahead of time. And so I go back and I'm like, screw it. I'm going to move to the mountains. So I moved to Denver. I had no (laughs) idea. I had no idea that you had this wild side to you. Yeah. I like rejected my scholarship, moved to Colorado, started climbing 14ers at first, you know, just like kind of cutting my chops on these guys. And then, uh, started going from there. Uh, first mountain I climbed of the seven summits was Kilimanjaro. That was in 2013. And then, um, started getting some more skills. I took some courses, you know, things so I would be safe. But uh, from there, I just kind of kept going and climbing higher and higher. How did you manage to marry these two, I guess, sides of the equation? 
Yeah. So, I mean, probably the two things I love most in life are science and uh, high altitude. So I always find a way to kind of pursue my passion. And so, you know, even though I turned down the full ride at East Carolina University Mm -hmm. and then went to Colorado, I found a way to uh, get a second bachelor's degree while I was there and then ended up getting a master's in exercise and sports nutrition down in Texas. But uh, long story. Anyways, I, you know, love studying the human body and how different environments or stressors impact the performance that you experience as athletes. And so, um, you know, even when I'm climbing mountains, I'm always collecting data. Like I'm taking, you know, glucose readings or ketone readings or whatever. So no matter what, yeah, I'm like the biggest nerd you've ever met. (laughs) Pretty sure you already knew that, but. Well, I mean, for sure a nerd, but I, I love anytime I see that someone has managed to find more than one thing that really lights their fire and put them together. And so it's, I mean, it's a rare and really cool thing what you've managed to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's, she's married to, uh, two passions of hers. Um, rocks. I wonder if we can step back to something when in, in your intro, you talked about, uh, working at this altitude, maybe you could explain to people yeah. how you're able to do that because I think it highlights one of the cool things about shameless plug here, working at Goo energy <laughs> labs is that it's a company built, you know, sort of around letting athletes try to be their best. And they installed something at the office to help you be your best, not just you, but other mm-hmm. folks who want to do something. So what's in our office? Yeah. So part of my job when they hired me on was to oversee what we call the endurance lab. And the endurance lab is kind of our testing ground where we have some of our elite and sponsored athletes and, um, you know, even some of our athletes who are just happen to work at Goo because we have some amazing athletes, including Yuri. Um, Mm -hmm. But we have a whole physiology testing unit there. And then eventually we a couple of years ago, we're talking about these kind of high altitude races. So specifically like Leadville, like our CEO loves this race, right? Oh yeah. So um, we were talking about, you know, what's the best way to prepare somebody who lives at sea level for these kinds of races. And of course, you know, the idea of installing an altitude chamber came to mind and I was like, yes, we should absolutely do that. Right. Cause like, <laughs> then I can use yeah. it in my free time. It's for uh, work. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, it is a really, uh, it's been kind of a cool tool to like have people prepare pair in there for different high altitude races and stuff. But yes, we have an altitude chamber. It's in our gym at our headquarters. I'm trying to picture how big or not big this is. So give me a, give me a sense of dimension. Sure. So, um, it's like a large laundry room, maybe like a 12 by eight feet and it's got clear kind of plexiglass and it's built into a corner. So it's it's almost like being in a little fishbowl. So people walk into the gym and immediately in front of them is the chamber. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm like sitting in there doing my stuff on my stand-up desk or whatever, they're like going in there to work out. It's just like, Hey guys, I'm here again. <laughs> 12,000 feet. Don't mind me. <laughs> Don't mind me. Yeah. I mean, if I turn blue, please open the door. Yeah, let me the door. So is in, you know, maybe this might be a TMI thing, but how does it smell in there? It seems like you've got this tiny little boxed off room. Does it smell like a gym in there or is it pretty, I mean, do you not work out in the high altitude chamber? Oh no, we work out in there. Um, no, we actually had like a little AC unit installed in there. Okay. So it does circulate the air and everything. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's not like a little high altitude it's not like, sauna. It's not, but okay. that would be kind of the best of all situations. Cause actually heat training helps you acclimate to altitude. Heck yeah. You'd have Yuri in there doing his high altitude, hot yoga. 
Yeah, definitely. My vinyasa yoga. That absolutely. Sure. We did actually put a little space heater in there to do some heat training. We're weird, but yeah. You guys, you guys are the best. <laughs> no, I mean, really, it's really fun to have um, like those assets at our disposal or the knowledge of like Roxanne because we've worked together. That's actually sort of how we became better friends is do, through some testing mm-hmm. on me um, and working with Inside Tracker and stuff like that. She knows how fond I am of having my blood drawn. <laughs> I held his hand. <laughs> yeah, she, she it's going to be my, okay. Yeah, hold my hand um, for sure. Um, well, since I that was just totally a, a casual, uh, non-intended plug for Inside Tracker, but I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about your diet because having worked with you for years, um, I've witnessed a physiological change with you in a good way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was mainly, well, a lot to do with diet and, and how you were training and stuff like that. I'm wondering, wondering if you could, you know, sort of talk people through what you did with your diet to, to maximize the athlete within you. Yeah. I mean, so I have always been pretty athletic and I've, you know, I've worked at goo for about three years now. So I've always been training for something. And usually it was just like running and trails and, and ultra marathons and things like that. But then I started training for Everest and it was like a whole nother level of training. Right. So I knew I had to kind of up the game in every way possible to just support the volume of training that I was going mm-hmm. through. Um, and so, you know, I'm training upwards of 20 to up to 25 hours a week. And for people who are doing all of this as like running or stairs or weights, it's pretty brutal on your body. So my main concern nutritionally was like, how do I support recovery and like a fast recovery? So, um, looking at things like making sure I'm getting plenty of protein so that your body can actually rebuild the tissues that it's breaking down over time. And then looking at things like detoxification enzymes, um, anti-inflammatory type foods. So things like cruciferous vegetables, uh, you know, berries full of antioxidants, even things like dark chocolate. But my diet was pretty much just like clean as heck, right? So like- I can attest to that. I've seen some very large salad bowls at lunchtime. Giant (laughs) salad every day for lunch with like a piece of salmon on it. Um, You know, just making my own dressing out of like olive oil and apple cider vinegar, no alcohol, uh, no sugar, no grains, no like refined foods, basically nothing that came with like a label on it. Um, So lots of produce, lots of fresh fish, uh, pretty clean. But yeah, it was a- You you eat like all of us, no wheat ought to eat is kind of what I'm hearing. Right. But I like stuck (laughs) with it for, you know, pretty hardcore, um, that whole time I was training that. And then, you know, another thing I kind of implemented, which was a little different was this idea of restricting your window of feeding so that your body has time to actually repair itself while it's not digesting. Mm -hmm. So a kind of popular concept right now is this idea of either intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me on days when I wasn't training as hard or I had a recovery day, I might do something like an 18 hour fast. Um, so like no food, right. Just right. water, uh, or coffee. I have to have coffee, but, um, and then the other nights of the week, I would shut it down at like, you know, six o'clock would be my latest meal. And then I wouldn't eat again until, you know, six o'clock the next day. So like 12 hours, just time for your body to like repair itself because it does take energy to break down food. And that energy is taking away from your body's ability to rebuild its tissues. We need to have a whole episode about your day job. But that is... (laughs) You guys, it's different every day. And that's the beauty of it. Like I have a new puzzle to solve every day when I come to work. I I love that everyone at Goo is a guinea pig for one experiment or another. That is really, I mean, and, and I mean that in 
the absolute most admiring possible way. You know, I would love, you know, make me a guinea pig. Test on me. So, <laughs> well, I can attest to that. She was, you know, attaching a glucose meter to our chief endurance officer, Brian Vaughn, the night before the race, right? Before this race, Leadville, yeah. yeah. We put a continuous glucose monitor on him to see what happens during, you know, the eight to 10 hours it would take to finish this race. And I haven't taken it off him yet. It's still on him. So we'll see. It oh, tracks okay. for up to six days at a time. Oh, I, I was going to ask. So what did you learn? But it sounds like you still have to do some, you have He's to take it off it. and, and yeah. do some analysis. Okay. So we know what our next several episodes are going to be like. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But we do want to spend a lot of time on this in this particular episode on your really amazing trip. And I don't think we've really fully explained even what that is. So 13 minutes into this episode, what are we talking about in this particular podcast? Okay. So taking a step back, Mount Everest, most people have heard of it. No, it's, you know, the highest mountain on the planet, 29,000 feet. It's about the same altitude that jumbo jets fly. Um, if you took 20 Empire State Buildings and stacked them on top of each other, that would give you some idea of the height of this ginormous mountain. Hmm. Um, that being said, because of the altitude, it takes about two months for most people to do a successful climb expedition of, you know, getting all the way to the top from wherever they're coming from. Right. Um, and most of that is spent like acclimatizing. So you're just like hanging out at base camp, moving between camps. You do rotations up and down the mountain. So you'll move up, rest there, come back down, rest, go back up further, come down. So it takes a long time. And my goal, I guess, or my issue with the way that expedition climbing works, which I love climbing mountains and I love being in the mountains and I'm not trying to take away from, you know, that experience of just being no. out there, but who has two months to take off of work, really, like, let's be honest, uh, <laughs> and like away from your family. Right. I was interested in seeing, you know, how can we make this more time efficient? Um, and there are companies that have been starting to experiment with rapid ascents mm -hmm. and using altitude chambers and tents to basically pre-acclimate, so get your body prepared for altitude before you ever leave home. And there's a company, um, Alpenglow Expeditions, who had really perfected this technique on the north side through Tibet, China. Um, and so I reached out to them to see kind of what their deal was and how they do this. And they were doing a 35 day expedition, which is like half the amount of time. Right. Um, so I talked to their CEO founder, Adrian Ballinger, and he's like, yeah, like that's really cool that you've done some experimenting and you have an altitude chamber and you've done this sort of thing before. Cause I'd already done some rapid ascents on my own, just testing it down in South America on volcanoes. And um, so anyways, he says to me, he's like, yeah, we've been doing the 35-day expedition really successfully for a few years now. We're kind of curious to see if somebody could maybe do it in two weeks door to door. I don't know. We're looking for the right person. And I was just like, well, no, <laughs> at first I was like, uh, you're crazy. Good luck. And talk to you later. Um, so, you know, that was kind of the end of the conversation. And then I like let it marinate for a couple of days. I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I could totally at least give it the college try. Like I've got all the resources. I can collect the data. Like why not? And so I called him back and I was like, yep, sign me up. Let's do it. <laughs> and that was how this whole two week door to door, uh, lightning ascent was what we called it began. And, and honestly, when I signed on for it, I thought maybe 
we had about a 10 to 30% chance of actually succeeding just because it's so dependent on weather, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and getting the perfect weather window, because you don't even know when you're going to fly over there until like a couple days before. And that's the hardest part of this is just getting it absolutely perfect. What is the, what do you mean by getting the perfect weather window for those of us who've never done any kind of, you know, rapid ascent of a mountain like that? Yeah. So, um, Everest sits on the jet stream, or I should say the jet stream runs over the the summit of Mount Everest. And so there's only a very short window of time when um, it moves off the summit long enough for people to actually get up there safely and come back down Mm -hmm. without terrible weather and high winds and, you know, frostbite. Um, So generally in any given season, which is in May, there'll be about seven to 10 days where there's good enough weather for people to climb. And this year ended up being worse than normal. So it was more like there were about three to five days total in, in May. And so, um, not only was it like a shorter weather window than normal, but the weather was just kind of worse than it has been. Hmm. Um, for a few reasons, there was like this typhoon system that had moved in, in early May. And so that delayed my departure even further. By the time I got there, like it had shifted and the winds were really bad. It was really cold again. So, um, yeah, it's climbing Everest is very weather dependent. While you were waiting for this window to open, you just, you have all of your bags packed ready to go and you don't know in exactly when it is. And then suddenly it's like, it's go time and you were out the door. So yeah. basically what happened was I was told to be ready to go by May 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we figured that would be the absolute soonest I could get out there. So everybody else was already on the mountain. So Adrian's on the mountain. My guide, Lydia Brady was on the mountain. Like everybody else who's climbing had been out there for like six weeks already or something. Mm-hmm. So you um, had an advanced team of sorts. Yeah. yeah. They were out there kind of like with their eyes to the weather and mm-hmm. like setting up tents and camps and things like that. Um, and so he was like, be ready May 1st. It could be any time between May 1st and May 15th, just be ready. And so I had all my stuff kind of like, you know, in my living room, all sorted and everything. It wasn't in the bags, but, uh, yeah, I was basically just waiting and ready to go from May 1st. And I finally ended up getting the call and flying out on May 10th. But like that whole 10 day period, like when I was just sitting there waiting was probably one of the most nerve wracking parts of this whole trip. I would be up the wall. Yeah. (laughs) No question. (laughs) Because I would imagine you were probably still trying to maybe manage some training too, right? Not sure how to, how to, to, to manage that before a big trip. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, when you taper before a race, you know, when the race is going to be right. So you know how long to taper when it's like, mm-hmm. you don't know when you're leaving and then you have travel days and then you don't know what it's going to be like when you get to the other side, you know, how much should you be training still? So, um, luckily I was working with coaches from uphill athlete, uh, Scott Johnston and Steve house and Seth Kina, but they were kind of being really cautious with me in that last 10 day lead up there, just like, you know, we want you to be ready, but we don't want you to be overtrained. We'd rather be a little better rested than overtrained. So, um, but yeah, it was super nerve wracking. So May 10th, you get the call and off you go. So tell us about the journey. I mean, really, I, I kind of just want to sit back and, and listen to what it is like to, in the course of two weeks, leave California get to the top of Everest and then come back in, I guess, 14, 14 days. Is it was that the actual number? Mm-hmm. Okay. So exactly two weeks. Yep. Maybe back it up a little bit. So when did, when did you start in earnest sleeping and working in the high altitude chambers? Um, so 
I started sleeping full time every night in the in the tent on February first. So three months before I thought I was going to leave. And eventually, that you were simulating what altitude? Yeah. I got as high as nineteen thousand feet. Okay. So base camp is at about seventeen, seventeen five, um, and yeah, I wanted to at least be prepared for that altitude. And then you know, one night I. I kind of mistakenly jacked it up to 19,000 feet and I definitely felt it, but uh, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, what, I, but what does that feel like? Is that just restless sleep? Is that like you're waking yourself up because um, you're having a hard time breathing? What does that look like? I mean, it, in a sense, you are suffocating yourself. Yeah. So it's like you wake up, you might be short of breath. Um, it does kind of get a little stuffy in there. Right. So it's like your, your bed, your mattress essentially goes in this tent. If you think of just like going camping, it's like that mm -hmm. size tent, um, that fits just over your mattress. And then you're like having air pumped in. Um, but yeah, so it can be restless. Sometimes I'll wake up at like one or two in the morning and not be able to fall back asleep again, that sort of thing. Um, and you'll definitely, notice, at least I noticed like the next day, your brain is just kind of not as clear because you're not getting as good a quality of sleep in general. So towards the end, I was definitely in this place where I was like having the hardest time finding the right word when I was just like in my day-to-day -day conversation or whatever, you know, like I could just tell my my cognitive function was slowing down, which is what happens at altitude, you know? Yeah. And you, you have a very demanding day job, you know, mm -hmm. too. So to, to, to juggle both of this is extremely tricky. Yeah. So, so yeah, for three months I was living and sleeping in simulated altitude. And so essentially I was trying to get at least half of my day above about, you know, 11, 12,000 feet. Cause the one at work goes to about 11 or 12,000. So I'd spend, you know, maybe four or five hours a day in the chamber at work. So I could do my work in there. I could do workouts in there. And then I would sleep for about eight hours in the tent at home. So half of my day spent in simulated hypoxia, mm -hmm. no social life whatsoever, um, <laughs> training my butt off. Uh, and this was all leading up to the trip. So, uh, oddly, well, kind, I, can I ask a little bit about the, what the kind of training mm -hmm. that you do to get ready for a extremely, a lightning ascent of Everest? So if you think about the specific demands of what you're going to be doing, it's a lot of going uphill with mm -hmm. a load, right? So wearing a pack. And so that's a lot of my training. I would spend a lot of time outdoors. So every weekend I'd spend, you know, anywhere from like six to 15 hours outside with like a pack going up hills or doing repeats up hills. Um, for a little bit of time, I went out to Mammoth Lake. So I was able to get on some snow and like wear my crampons and things like that. But like wearing up to like 65 pounds pack and just going <laughs> up and down hills for a long time. Would you also wear the, the clothes that you would need to be wearing as you were going up the, uh, going up the mountain? Because I imagine that those are bulky and mm -hmm. restrictive so that, you know, they would take some getting used to as well. They are. And no, unfortunately, it's not something that's really like, you can't really wear those anywhere else. The, the 8,000 meter down suit that I wore is huge. Right. And so I can't even picture, I mean, I've seen photos, but I have no idea what kind of, what it feels like to be in something like that. It's, I mean, it looks like a spacesuit. Well, think about when you're like in a sleeping bag and you're camping, just imagine if that sleeping bag had legs and arms cut into it, right? Like that's what it feels like. It's, it's a sleeping bag with, you know, arms and legs. Um, so imagine trying to climb in that or like 
be any kind of, uh, you know, have any sort of dexterity in Mm -hmm. a giant sleeping bag. That's kind of what it's like. But, um, so yeah, no, I didn't get to wear, I did break in the 8,000 meter boots. So I did wear those in mammoth. So those ones are, you know, like they're giant boots. Um, and they have like an inner boot and an outer boot and everything. But, um, other than the boots, I didn't really get to try out the gear much before I left. But anyway, so a lot of just like uphill, long duration, weighted Mm -hmm. stuff. um, And that was a lot of my training. Um, So anyways, going back to, okay, so I get the call. Right. And I'm ready to go. So I book my ticket for like two days later. And then I get on a plane on the 10th. And it takes me two days just to get to China, right? Just takes forever. So that's already eating up two days of my 14 day. Like clock is ticking, right? I mean, are you feeling that? Are you like... Go faster playing. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. You know, when we, I think we got a little bit ahead of ourselves and we're like, we kind of posted it online Mm -hmm. as like, we're going to do the 14 day door to door trip. And I was like, well, I guess we got to do it now. Like, (laughs) here we go. Um, So yeah, there was a little bit of pressure because we had kind of put it out there in the universe. Um, So anyways, I get to Tibet. So uh, I get there. My guide picks me up. I landed about 12,000 feet and immediately we drive to base camp at 17,500 feet. And so, you know, right there, it's like if the whole hypoxia thing hadn't worked, uh, it could have been game over right there, right? Like you get there and just like pass out (laughs) and like, that's it. Um, But fortunately it did work because I got there and I felt fine. Um, At 17,000 feet. At 17,000 feet. Because that's the pressure that you'd been sleeping at Mm -hmm. and and, I guess to a lesser degree working at. Yeah. But I mean, you think about it, like that's higher than any of the mountains in the lower 48, right? So yeah, I mean, just pretty high as a trivial comparison. But so yesterday I did the Leadville 100 mountain bike race and at 12, five, which is the highest point of that race, I felt like my legs were, you know, just turning to rubber Mm -hmm. and that's 5,000 feet lower than your base camp. That's just, I mean, to me, that just boggles me that you were able to get to that altitude and continue functioning normally and be prepared to go yet higher. Can I ask you a question about mm-hmm. altitude and hydration? You know, cause a lot of people coming to prepare for Leadville, mm-hmm. um, wonder like little hacks and tricks is, 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 yeah, and is the myth true that like trying to really stay on top of your hydration is one way to help mitigate the effects of altitude or is that not really true? It is because, you know, once you get to altitude, your body actually starts to effectively dehydrate itself on purpose because it wants to concentrate its red blood vo- uh, red blood cell volume. Uh, so it'll do that by decreasing plasma volume. So it'll actually make you want to urinate more. Um, you're breathing more at altitude. So you're losing more. Uh, yeah. You're losing more water through uh, vapor that you're breathing. Um, so yeah, definitely staying on top of hydration at altitude is one way to sort of counteract some of the negative effects that you might feel like the headache and, mm-hmm. um, even nausea, things like that. But yeah, so I'm, I'm always very proactive about hydration in general, but especially, especially at altitude, you know, maybe more like four to six liters a day. Yeah. So, I mean, just on that point, do you wear uh, a hydration vest or something underneath all of your snow gears to stay on top of your hydration when you're, when you're climbing like that? Or is that mm-hmm. just some sort of thermos or bottle or? Yeah. Unfortunately, because of the environment up there, right, it's really cold. So yeah. a hydration bladder would just freeze. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit tougher and, you know, even if it were against your body, that yeah, cause like, like the, question, the hose right? will freeze. Yeah. Right. And they even make insulated, you know, tubes and stuff like that, but it, it's, it's so cold up there. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, 
Yeah. And then you're carrying an ice block and there's no point whatsoever. <laughs> but I mean, we'll get to it. I, I did have a bit of a fail on summit day and that's, it is what it is, you know, like it's, it's sometimes just very challenging. And sometimes even the people who know best <laughs> can't keep up with, you know, what they should be doing. And that definitely happened. Well, and this was in fact, your first time ever to go up Everest. If you did not learn something that would have been just ridiculous. I can't even imagine that, right? In the first time major event, they do it perfect. Okay. So we're at base camp. And um, right when I get to base camp, essentially, I learned that, well, in the two days that I've been traveling to get there, weather has changed. And instead of looking at a potential summit day of May 20th, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm getting there on May 12th. Um, instead of looking at May 20th, it might be more like May 24th, 25th. So right off the bat, I'm already oh, like, it's well, putting you behind. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, this probably isn't going to be 14 days. Like I had left on the 10th. If we're summoning on the 15th or the 25th, then, you know, that's, yeah, we're already done. So I get there and they kind of give me the update on the weather and they're like, you know, it is what it is and we'll still go for it, but it's probably not going to happen in 14 days. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like I'm here, we're going to do it. Like I'm right. going to give it my best shot no matter what. Um, so that's kind of what I walked into at base camp and, you know, true to what they had said, the weather was kind of crappy. It was really cold. It was really windy. So I got pinned down at base camp for the first couple of days, um, and just made the best of it. And then we, my guide and I, Lydia Brady started moving up the mountain, um, on like the 14th or 15th. And, um, so the way it works is there are a series of camps that go progressively higher. Most people will go through like camps one through four and then make a summit bid from camp four. Um, and so we ended up going only up to camp two and made our summit bid from camp two, just because of the way like time worked out. And it was just like, you know, it made more sense for us logistically just to make it a really long summer day as opposed to wasting more days getting higher in different camps. So we start moving up towards camp two, uh, knowing that the weather was kind of not on our side, but we wanted to at least get ourselves as close as we could to be in position for that weather window. Um, and I was feeling good the whole time, right? Like, so I'm pleasantly surprised. I feel like things are working out. I feel the altitude and I'm tired when I'm walking, but I'm not like getting sick. I don't have any symptoms of like AMS, altitude sickness or anything like that. Um, eating well, which is always mm. a good sign. Like if I ever stop eating on a mountain, we know we're in trouble because I have a great appetite at altitude. I, I want to ask, what are you eating? Everything at that point. So I go from my total Can you strict eat everything? Diet. I mean, it's because I would think that a lot of foods would be impossible to eat because it would be frozen solid. Well, I mean, you have your little stove and everything, so you can definitely okay. heat up food. Um, but I mean, how about on the go? Right. Oh, on the go. Okay. So taking a step back, I did have, because I work in R&D at Goo Energy Labs and mm -hmm. we have a little test pilot kitchen, we can make a lot of custom products, which is really cool. Yeah. You have resources in that vein yeah. that not everyone has. So I did have, um, my product developers worked with me to come up with a custom Everest bar that was like a high calorie, kind of like a high fat. It's, mm. if you think of like, it's coconut butter macadamia nuts, cacao. It was just like really delicious. Something that you want to eat no matter what. Yeah. So I had that and I would always eat that kind of on the move because it was just like lots of calories. Um, so I had bars, they made me a custom like Roctane drink mix with just like special ingredients for helping me stay 
cognitively very focused. Um, and then like a custom gel that we made similarly. So a lot of my concern was being able to think clearly at altitude, which is a big issue when you're up there and lack of oxygen to the brain. Um, so yeah, I did have kind of my own nutrition matrix to take with me, but as far as like eating at night, when you stop to make camp and everything, I was just like, you know, one night I'm staring at my fork and there's like pasta wrapped around mashed potatoes with balsamic glaze on it. And I'm like, what the hell am I eating? I don't know, but it's calories. So. <laughs> <laughs> like it. Yeah. What altitude was camp two at? Camp two was at, uh, 25,000 feet on the North side. So again, yeah, I'm on the North side and there's the South side. So that mm-hmm. comes into play a little bit later, but, um, the South side through Nepal is the more popular route to climb. And that's where you find most of the climbers. So on the North side, which is what I climbed through Tibet, um, there's about a third, the number of climbers. Is that why you chose it? Or was there another reason? Well, primarily it was because Alpen Glow Expeditions mm-hmm. who had been, you know, perfecting this lightning ascent technique only operates on the North. Ah. Um, and I think, yeah, it's probably easier for them logistically because there are fewer people on the mountain. Um, because generally it's, it's a little bit worse weather. It's more exposed than the South. So you get higher winds, colder temps. Um, and the more technical and difficult part of the climbing on the North side is at the highest elevations. Mm-hmm. So on your summit days where you get the sketchiest climbing versus on the South side, it's like you go through the Kumbu icefall, which is terrifying. And, and, you know, that's where you're climbing across ladders and crevasses, but that's at 19,000 feet. So you're, you know, still thinking pretty clearly and moving pretty well. Are you? Well, <laughs> compared to no, 28,000 feet. <laughs> but you, Well, sure, sure. But I'm, I, I wasn't asking that as a joke at all, but you, at 19,000 feet, you were still pretty clear, pretty lucid. Well, and that's the thing with a traditional climb, you've spent already probably 10 days at base camp before you even start, you know, mm-hmm. going through the icefall or whatever. So okay. you have a lot of time to sort of acclimate. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I'm on the North side and, and we make our way up to camp two and we kind of found this small possible window on May 22nd and the winds weren't looking great. It was looking a little cold. And the other problem was there were no lines up to the summit on the North. So every year on both sides, the North and the South, there have to be ropes or lines fixed to the summit. And that's what tethers you to the mountain in Mm. case you slip and fall. Right. So you don't go completely off. Right. Um, and generally like a team of Sherpa will go up and fix the lines for the season. And then everybody else can kind of share and climb. Um, and so on the South side, the ropes have been put up as of like May 14th and people have been climbing on the South and then on the North side, they still hadn't been fixed at that point. So here we are like May 21st sitting there, the ropes aren't finished. They had attempted about five times to go up and finish. And the weather was just so bad that they came back down. So we're sitting there and the discussion goes, you know, the rope fixers are supposed to finish tomorrow. If they finish tomorrow, and if you guys can get a good enough weather window, you might be able to summit and come back down. And that would put you in place to get down and out in 14 days. But we don't know if they'll finish. We don't know if the weather will be any good. And you'd have to go from camp too, because, you know, that's where you're at right now. And that's the only way you'd be able to get to the summit and down in time. It's a lot of conditions. It's a lot of conditions. And not only that, you'd have to leave much later in order to give the rope fixers time to get up there before you. So the later you leave, the later you summit and the later you summit, the better chance that like bad weather is going to come in on any mountain. You don't want to be up there in the afternoon, right? Like in general, you just want to get down before bad weather rolls in. So all of these things are kind of like on the table and Adrian 
gets on the radio with us, Lydia and I, he's at a different camp from us. And he's like, look, there's a small chance you could do it. It would be very unorthodox. It'll be a late day. It'll be a really long day. And there's no guarantees that you will get, you know, to the top because they might not finish. Sure. I mean, you also left out, it's probably riskier too, right? To some degree, not knowing if the ropes are fixed at the top, the the weather maybe not cooperating. I mean, you're taking a, a larger risk. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, is like, you know, even if they do fix the lines, you're still the first ones to use them for the season. And it's like, and we found they like, <laughs> they might not be in the best condition yet if they haven't been tested. So, wow. um, so yeah, Adrian was like, you know, here's kind of where we're at. You guys have the choice. If you want to go and try and do this and, and have the shot to do the 14 day thing, this is it, but this might be your only shot. And if it doesn't work, then you probably won't get another one. Like you won't have time to rest and then, you know, launch another attempt after that. So decide if you want to do it and uh, get back to me. So, so how was that conversation with Lydia? Tell us about that. Yeah. So we, I think both kind of knew, even as he was telling us all of like the drawbacks and everything, we were both kind of like, yeah, we're going to go for it. And Mm. took us maybe two minutes of deliberation to decide that we were going to make the push. Um, So, you know, it wasn't much deliberation, but it was definitely like, we knew there were a lot of risks involved and, uh, we were already at camp two for the night, but we had been moving consistently with somewhat heavy packs between camps. So we're already kind of like into this like fatigue debt, right? So we're moving camps day after day with heavy packs. And then it's like, you get to camp two, it's four o'clock, you're sitting at camp and it's like, okay, well, you're going to launch and make your summit attempt at 1am or whatever. I'm like, okay, so we're going to go to bed now. And obviously I didn't sleep or anything. And so, uh, we knew summit day would have to start late, which normally you'd start your summit attempt before midnight. Uh, we didn't leave until close to 2am. So it was pretty late, but, uh, yeah, we decided just to go for it. Were you able to get any sort of updates from the line setters from the Sherpa? Is there any communication or is that just your, just a hope and a prayer? Yeah, no, we had no idea because they were actually at camp three. It was where they had been staying. So we couldn't see them. We didn't know. And they're contracted by the Chinese government. So it's this group of climbing Sherpa. They're kind of like elite climbing Sherpa. They look like super badass. They've got matching suits and everything. Yeah. (laughs) So we knew they were up there somewhere. And it wasn't until we actually got to camp three during our summit push that we could see their headlamps up on the summit ridge. And we knew that they were moving. So we were like, oh, thank God, you know, but that's three hours into our summit day. So you know, into that, the first three hours, we were like, well, I hope they, I hope they left camp already. Cause we're going to otherwise catch them up in, you know, a couple hours. So. And uh, there was one thing you mentioned just a moment ago that might be really useful t- for regular athletes doing their regular things, whether at altitude or not. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were talking about not getting any sleep the night before, I was thinking it must, it, to me, it seems likely that you would have gone days without getting a decent night's sleep just because of the, you know, not, you know, setting aside between the beginning of May and when you actually flew, the, the your anxiety level must have been through the roof. But, you know, once you were there, this is such a big thing and you you know that you were taking a lot of gambles in a way that how did you get any sleep at all? And are there techniques you can recommend for those of us who are doing much smaller things like doing a, an important race to ourselves or to doing the, you know, these big events, you know, so that you can stay sharp when the big day actually comes. 
Yeah, it's crazy because um, I know very well how important sleep is. Mm -hmm. Just like so incredibly important that most people don't even realize just from a performance standpoint, from a mental clarity and decision-making standpoint, just overall safety. And I knew there was no way I was going to get any sleep that night. Um, So the best thing, you know, second best to getting a solid night of sleep is just finding a way to kind of like relax your mind or like tune out, even like meditate, something like Mm -hmm. that. So for me, I like listening to music. I have like a strong affinity for music that is very calming. And so I put on like my favorite song that night when I was laying there in my tent for, you know, several hours unable to sleep and just kind of put it on repeat. But um, yeah, finding a way to just calm your mind in the way that replicates what happens during sleep is probably the second best thing you can do. Okay. Um, so whether it's a meditation track or some music that you really like, then yeah, I would do that. So it's not like you got to sleep. You just acknowledge that you weren't going to get sleep and try to get some rest. Exactly. Okay. Just try to relax. Well, I mean, maybe further to your point, was there any supplementation, you know, like magnesium or anything like that, that you were trying to, to help, you know, aid sleep at all? On the mountain, generally not, just because I don't want to have anything that might, if I'm unable to sleep, like leave me feeling groggy. But at home, I for sure use um, magnesium. So we have a magnesium product at Mm. Goo that I use. Um, I also use melatonin every night. So I'm a big fan of that. But yeah, in general, I I do supplement to help improve sleep quality and sleep latency. So the ability to fall asleep faster. Um, But on the mountain, I don't want to there's so many things going on physiologically that I just don't want to add anything unnecessary to the mix. All right. I keep taking us on little sidetracks, but it, 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 let's go ahead and get to, let's get, back let's get to, to the, the top of that mountain. To the yeah. summit. We have those lights up there. The guy's setting the ropes. That's right. <laughs> right. So summit day, we leave at close to 2am. So it's myself, my guide, Lydia Brady. And by the way, let me just say, She's a total badass, one of my heroes in life. And I was just so amazed that she wanted to climb with me on this trip. And she had the record for being the first female to ever summit Everest without oxygen. Um, Hmm. When she was 27, she had summited five times from the South already, never from the North. So she had essentially retired from guiding and climbing Everest. But then I called her and told her I was doing this crazy thing on the North. And she was like, well, I'll come out of retirement to do that with you. So um, anyways, with her... She's amazing. And then we had two climbing Sherpa with us, uh, Ming Men Pasong, because, you know, this was her first time on the route. And clearly we wanted somebody who knew the route very well. So Ming Men, this was his 15th attempt at, you know, the summit. So he knew it really well. And then Pasong was with him. So anyways, the four of us are making our way. And about three hours in, we hit camp three at 27.5. 27,500 feet. We see the rope fixing Sherpa ahead of us on the ridge with their headlamps. And we're like, great, they're going, like, keep going, guys. Um, And so we continue to make our way. And on the north side, what happens is you get past Camp 3 and then you get to the summit ridge, essentially. And the ridge you follow for you know, six hours or something like that. And it's just like 10,000 foot drop off. It's very kind of exposed. And um, that's where a lot of winds can come up. It can be very brutal on the summit ridge. Can you give us a visual? How wide is that ridge? I mean, it depends on where you are on it, but there are some spots where it's no wider than your boot. Like, yeah, like you're putting one boot in front of the other because that's how wide kind of you have like a little rock ledge. 
And there's these ladders that you have to scale. So there's these these rock features or, or I guess rock cliffs that you call the steps. So mm-hmm. the first, second, and third steps that you have to climb. And that's kind of the the crappiest, hairiest climbing on the whole mountain on that side. And it's above 28,000 feet, right? So um, the rope fixing Sherpa ended up putting up ladders the last many years in a row because it's just safer than trying to like free climb it. Um, so, you know, you're climbing these ladders, 10,000 feet drop off. They're barely hanging on. They're kind of like swinging in the breeze, very sketchy, way worse coming down. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that was definitely one of the tougher parts of the climb. Uh, we get above the first, second and third steps. I feel like this is like, you know, one of those heroes quests where you're like, and the next trial is yeah. the third step. <laughs> yeah, so we get past the third step and then, um, again, we kind of see them ahead of us. We know that they're getting closer to the summit and we're like, oh, thank God they're going to make it. The weather was holding out. We were feeling pretty good about it. Like it was warmer than it had been forecast. And Mm -hmm. I was actually sweating in my suit and I was like, oh my God, this is hot. I had worn way too many layers underneath. Um, So we get to the final snow slope that goes up to the summit. And um, so we're, we're, clipped into this one line and it's affixed to a rock up ahead or up above us on the slope. It's affixed to a rock and all four of us are kind of on the line, making our way up ascending. Um, and all of a sudden the line comes loose and the rock comes shooting out of the slope and down the slope towards us, like tumbling. It's a pretty big rock, right? Like it's going to take you out. Um, and so it's tumbling down the slope towards us and then 10,000 feet below us is the drop off. And so that was like the moment when I thought, wow, "Wow, this, this could totally be it. This is, this is game over right here. If this thing takes us down. Cause you're clipped in. Yeah. Cause we're, we're attached to this line and the line just comes out and then, yeah. So what do you do? Do you have a so, knife or what do you do? Do you unclip? Like, how does that work? So what we do is essentially like you get out of the way and you self-arrest. So you dig your ice axe into the snow and then you kind of like hunker down on your belly and kick your toes or your crampons. So like spikes into the mountain so that you're secured onto the mountain. The rock was gone. Like it went off the mountain, right? So that's gone. The line is just loose now, but, um, it had been, there are points in anchors, but they're further up and further down the mountain. But that one anchor in particular with the rock had just come out and like shot down the mountain towards us. So that was probably the scariest moment on my summit day when I was like, wow, that could have been it for us. Yuri, you and I are wimps. Exactly. I just, we, uh, I ride my bike for a long time and you do the same thing, but faster. <laughs> I, yeah, I, no, nothing I've like never that, heard any ever. of this. Yeah. Okay. Does your mom, have you shared this with your mom? Is she going to be freaked no. out? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh-oh. Sorry, mom. Yeah. <laughs> I know my mom wouldn't want to hear something like this. We won't have her hear this yeah. episode. Okay. We, we got to keep going. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the rock comes flying off. Right. So anyways, we, we recover from that. But again, we're the first ones to use these lines. And so now I'm just totally shaken. I'm like, holy sure. crap. Like This thing that's supposed to keep me safe is... Yeah. Is not just the opposite. Right. Right. So, um, at that point we were pretty close to the summit. So we kind of like refix the line to something else and then keep going just way more cautious and like a little less, you know, let's rely on this line than we would have otherwise been. Um, so we get up to the summit, the rope fixers had finished maybe 30 minutes before we got there and we're coming down and like, they were, I think, surprised to see us because they didn't think anybody else would be kind of climbing that day. And there was nobody else climbing that day from our side. It was crazy. We were the only ones like 
nobody else was behind us, nobody else was in front of us, just because it was such a gamble to go when nobody knew if they would actually finish. Um, so they were surprised to see us. They descended. We got to the top. Did you high five them? We did. It, yeah, I hope they, so. Yeah. yeah, we totally did. And they gave us hugs. It was so <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. Awesome. It was like such a cool moment. We're like, yeah, we we're all excited yeah. to see each other up there. Um, we get to the top. It was just the four of us, which is crazy, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, even going into it, I imagine there would be a ton of people at the summit and you'd kind of have to wait your turn to get, it's like a ping pong size table summit, right? So you're like waiting to get up there so you can hold your flag and, and take your picture or whatever. But no, there was none of that. And it was even sunny. I was just like, what in the hell? Like, did I die? Did we actually go off the mountain with that rock? Like what is going on here? Um, but it, it was like that moment of just like perfect, right? Like you don't get those moments in life. And it was one of those. And yeah, come to find out later, that was the same day that that picture had been taken from the South with all those people lined up in that traffic jam. But like we had gotten there, it was close to noon and everybody had come and gone from the other side. We even looked down the South side, down that route, and there was not a soul to be seen. So it was just like, yeah, for a minute I was like, are we on the wrong mountain or like, am I dead? Like this shouldn't be happening. Sure. I mean, it it comes off as amazing, but I think in the background, there's also the fact that you had been preparing for months and months and months and were willing to take the, I guess, the calculated risks that made it possible for you to be ready for this, you know, for this very narrow and uh, I guess surprising, uh, surprising window of opportunity. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a risk and we did kind of do an unorthodox mm-hmm. approach to it, even, you know, going as late as we did and we got really lucky. Um, so there was a certain amount of luck and, you know, just like good fortune with the weather and the mountain. Like I talked to the mountain, I will be totally honest. I was just like absolutely talking to the mountain the whole time, like, please give us safe passage. Like, um, but yeah, I mean, all said and told, it took us a good nine, 10 hours to get to the summit and I, we were there and I'm like, this is amazing. This is beautiful. But I'm like, we're only halfway. And exactly, yeah, the trip back down. Yeah, that's the hardest part. And the thing is, that's where most people die is on the descent. Mm -hmm. So I knew that the hardest part was still ahead of us. So I'm glad that we are at at the summit and wanted to get, you know, get to that. I do want to ask, I mean, when you say you were going, you know, it took nine to 10 hours to get to that summit, uh, you know, and I, I, I hate to turn this back to me, but you know, yesterday I did a eight to nine hour effort and I made sure that I ate around 250 calories every hour. Good job. Right? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm very good at that. It's, you know, lots of discipline over, over, you know, many years. What did you do as far as food goes during that nine to 10 or eight, nine to 10 hour effort? Well, Fatty, I wish I had a better story for you there. And I wish I could say that I stuck to my 250 calories per hour goal, um, which is kind of what I had hoped for, right? Mm-hmm. So I had, I had planned for at least 200 calories an hour. That's what I brought with me. That's kind of a magic number. Yeah. Right? Sure. Um, and so between like the bars that we had custom made and the drink mix that I had in my bottle and custom gels, like I definitely planned and prepared for that. Come to find out when you have an oxygen mask on for the first time ever and you're above 7,000 meters or, you know, 23,000 feet for the first time ever, it's much more challenging, yes, to get anything into your mouth. And the effort is just 
everything feels 10 times harder at those altitudes, right? So it's mm -hmm. like even clipping and unclipping in and out of the lines was fatiguing. Like sure. I was tired pretty early on in the day and I knew that everything was just extra effort, even feeding myself. And so at one point I was just like, this is too much effort to pull this oxygen mask off and try and get calories in. So It I sounds like a bonk. I mean, that's when I... That's when I don't eat, but I, you know I don't have something obstructing at me from eating. But you had been training your system to be able to metabolize whatever fat you had left, right on right. on your body to 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 fuel you in a situation like this, right? Exactly. And so the magic was that my coaches, and at first I kind of you know was like, what the hell? They had me do most of my really long, lower intensity, but like really long workouts fasted. So no calories whatsoever, mm -hmm. which in my world, like my job is getting people to eat calories during exercise sure. and make products for that purpose. Right. So I'm like, uh, no, like, why would I do that? But I did because they told me to do that and they're my coaches. So I did. Um, so it made me a really good fat burner. Um, right. and that's another reason why I ended up losing like 20 pounds during my training and 19 of them were fat. It was pretty insane. Um, I just became really good at burning my body fat stores during exercise. And so on summit day, it ended up being about 15, maybe 16 hours all said and told I had about 200 calories worth of food and a half a liter of fluids. So that's the fail that you were referring to. That was the to. fail. <laughs> yeah. And, but I never bonked like mentally I was there, you know, like I was totally sharp. I felt fine mentally. I was just like, mm. I didn't want to expend the energy to feed myself. And I was like, it's fine. I'm just going to keep moving. There was no point where I was like, I'm not going to make it. My muscles are going to fail. It was just like, it's too much extra effort to, to feed myself or take off my pack to get to my water. And so I made that choice. Not that th there is that you're going to go back and do this again, I assume in the next, uh, you know, in 2020, you're going to see if you can do this in one week or something like that. But how would you, how would you correct that if you were doing it again? I'm sure you've asked yourself that question. Right. Yeah. So I've thought about it a lot and even something as simple as having like a better delivery system, like a straw mechanism that could attach to, mm -hmm. you know, your food so that you could easily, cause we've worked with, uh, pilots that have to feed through a tube through their pressurized suits. And sure, it's a similar thing. Like they yeah. have to, yeah, everything has to come through the tube. So I was like, yeah, if we had something like that, so I could fit it under the mask would have been a lot easier. Um, yeah, I think any of those kinds of solutions would have worked, but hmm. I've definitely thought about it a lot. <laughs> sure. So we've made the top, but we know all the issues usually come on the descent. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what was the descent like? Yeah. The descent was pretty horrifying because my suit was, and this is one thing that kind of irks me a little bit about mountaineering in general. Um, they don't make a lot of women specific high altitude mountaineering gear. And so my suit, even though it was a men's small was like huge on me. Big. And so the belly of the thing actually obstructed my view of my feet for one. And then I'm wearing, you know, this oxygen mask. So that's kind of obstructing my ability to like turn my head and I have an oxygen tank again. I'm not able to see very well. Um, I've got my goggles on, I've got crampons on, and then you're going backwards down steel rickety ass ladders um, <laughs> over cliffs with like a 10,000 foot drop off. And so it was very terrifying coming down yeah. those steps. I will tell you, like that was definitely the most horrifying part of that climb. And at that point I'm pretty tired, right? So we're, you know, 12, 13 hours in. Um, I took a couple of falls, like my suit has some rips in it from where I just like, I couldn't see my feet. I was going down. I like caught my cramp on, on a rock or something. And then just like 
you know, fell down the line a little bit. Um, so it was rough. It was, I was tired. It was hard. It was definitely like the most tired I've ever felt in my whole life. But, uh, there's just this, uh, this mantra in my mind where I'm like, you know, one step, one breath, or, you know, one more is what I tell myself often. And it's like, I know I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep going no matter what. It's always just one more. So we made it. Just one more. I I'm like getting that. goosebumps listening to this, man. I'm yeah. Kind of like tearing up hearing like this in all honesty. Amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, really. We'll do that for you. So yeah. this, yeah, this is remarkable. So tell take us to, take us to the end. Yep. So summit day, we get down to back to camp two. And initially we had thought we would maybe make it further down the mountain that day to get us in a better position to get all the way out. Remind me, what day is this? How many days are we, are we into? So my arrival date in Tibet was on the 12th summited on the 22nd. So we're 10 days in at this point, but Mm -hmm. 12 days from when I left San Francisco because of the travel. Okay. So 12 days in. So I have two days to get out. Two days to to get out. Yeah. And I know that two of those are going to be travel, but I get to right. pick up a day because of time change. So, <laughs> yes, all of these all things right. come into play. Yeah. All right. So I'm coming down. We end up staying at Camp 2 that night because I was just too tired to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so because we stayed at Camp 2, that made the next day even longer to get to base camp where we'd be picked up for our ride back to the airport. So um, after a 16-hour summit day, get to camp two. My clothes are wet because I had sweat through them. Everything's going to freeze because it's freezing cold. I got to strip off all my wet clothes. Even my down suit was wet. Got up about four hours later. Things are still damp, but I'm like, screw it. Put on these icy clothes and get out of here. Um, have about 13 hours to get back down to base camp where a car is going to be waiting for us. Um 13 hours of hiking with a pack, full pack, right? Down the mountain or? Yeah. 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 So we're picking up stuff as we go too, because Mm -hmm. we had like dropped things along at different camps. Um, So we pick up stuff, but like I had duffels too. So my duffels were waiting at like base camp, base camp. Um, So I wasn't carrying like 60 pounds worth of gear, but. But it's not like this is an easy walk down the mountain. (laughs) And it's not like a nice, you know, smooth path or anything. It was definitely like, you know, you're rolling your ankle every other step. Like you're you're just so tired. And like the terrain is so rocky and loose. And we even get lost at one point because we're supposed to stop at this one camp for some hot fluids and like a refill on water. And we get there and there's no camp. And I'm like, what, where are we? Like, it should be here. We're at 19,000 feet. This is where the camp is. And luckily I had my Garmin inReach device with me because I had dropped mm. pins at all my camps. And I was like, no, this is absolutely where the camp was. They had packed up and left. Oh. The camp was gone and we didn't know, <laughs> but it was a prank. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was like, a, the yeah. total, I started crying at that the al- point. I know oh, the sure. outpost with resupplies was not there. That's yeah. horrible. I sat down, I started crying and then I was like, okay, get your shit together. Let's go. Um, so yeah, but luckily I dropped pins because, you know, otherwise we would have spent wandering around looking for it. So 19,000 feet, I'm like, okay, we got 2,000 more feet to descend. And, you know, that day we descended 8,000 feet total in about, you know, 18, 20 miles. It was a long day. Um, so we get to base camp. Uh, we have a car coming to pick us up in two hours. We're packing all of our stuff into our duffels that we had left at base camp. Car comes. It's about midnight. It's an eight-hour drive to the airport. We get to the airport, get on a plane. I have 30 hours of travel to get me back to San Francisco. I get there at 11 p.m. the night of, you know, the 14th day. So we make it with one hour to spare. Oh, wow. And it was like the amazing race, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that is just incredible. And that you did it. I mean, you, you set a, a, an exact number of days that you were going to strive to get. And I mean, you made some real gambles, I guess, but I, I don't know if gamble's the right word. That makes it sound like you're rolling the dice. You made some hard decisions is what you did yeah. and it paid off. Well, and then, and then just all the logistics that had to come together, especially there at the oh, yeah. end, right? To, right. to make that happen. I had to buy my plane ticket at base camp. Oh, yeah. yeah. So like, I didn't even know if I was going to get a flight back in time, but I found the one flight that got me there at 11 p.m. the night I needed to get back. And then they upgraded me to business class. I was like, oh, hell yeah. That is, you know what? That was enough. the mountain given back. For all your mantras, that was the mountain given back. I right was like, there. I did something right in life because, yeah, I just don't deserve this. It was it was the best uh, business class flight I've ever taken in my life. <laughs> that is Hopefully nice. You slept too, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, a, a little bit of relaxing after a long time of no relaxation at all. Now, I think I know your type well enough to know that there is no way you haven't already asked yourself the what's next question. And, pr- it, and I can tell, and it, the podcast listeners will not be able to tell, but the way you, you, you look down and smile, I can tell there, there's our, I don't even know if you're going to tell us, but I can tell there's something there. What's next? Just tell us. Well, of course, there's something next. And, you know, there's always something next. I'm sure a lot of. <laughs> Maddie's all giddy over there. No, yeah. I love the what's next. I know. Yeah. I'm sure a good. lot of listeners can relate to, like, you know, you get through a big event or big race and you're a little bit depressed for a while, right? Because it's like that was such a big part of your life and you train so hard mm-hmm. and then it's over and then what? So, you know, I knew that would happen and preemptively kind of planned my last trip, which would be the last of the seven summits or the seven highest peaks on each continent. And so my last will be in um, Antarctica and it will be over New Year's. So I'll be heading to Antarctica in December to climb Mount Vincent and a couple other objectives down there. So that'll be my next big exploration. So you haven't, you haven't disassembled and uh, sold the, uh, the, the hypoxic chamber on eBay or anything like no, that. You're that's, still that's using permanent, that. dude. That's permanent <laughs> at the office. Well, she's got one at her house too, right? That's oh yeah. Event. So, and you're still sleeping in that, I assume. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's the funny thing. I actually did like disassemble it and send it back before I left for Everest. And then I called, um, my I mean, friend, Brian, who, who runs hypoxico, the company that I got the tent from. I was like, Brian, just I return really that to sender. Yeah. Just I was be- like, can you just send it back to me? I miss sleeping in the tent. And he was like, you're a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> But he sent me a tent, so I've been sleeping in it for like a month now. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, just because I'm a huge fanboy of yours, rocks. let's just get that out there in the open. But you haven't mentioned some exciting news that you shared with me that, you know, a new sponsor of yours might be stoked about. Oh, right. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that kind of came out of this Everest trip, I guess, is um, Marmot reached out to me. So Marmot makes outdoor gear and equipment and clothing. Um, and so they heard about the lightning ascent and they were like, wow, it's really awesome what you did up there. Like, we'd love to have you as, you know, kind of an ambassador, an athlete for our brand. And so I just recently, and goes into effect in a few days here, uh, signed on as an athlete for Marmot. So they'll be helping support future climbs and trips. Fantastic. Are they going to make you a suit that fits? <laughs> they are. Yes. They actually yeah. are. That's, I mean, that, right that was there, that's my, it. That's number one right thing there, that yeah. I assumed is like, okay, so they, they're going to commit to uh, making some gear that is 
uh, fit for women. Fantastic. I mean, that's good in general, right? Good. Yeah. So they're, yeah, they're actually getting ready to release a new technology for insulative, uh, you know, clothing that will kind of revolutionize the space. And so I'm really excited to be part of that whole launching, but, uh, yeah, they're making me my own custom suit for Antarctica. And I'm really stoked. Cause it's gonna be super cold there. <laughs> oh, th I can tell that this is just the first of many episodes with Roxanne Vogel. Roxanne, you know so much and you do so much. It is just such a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I get to work with you, obviously, and um, it's such a pleasure and, and watch from afar and cheer you on. But um, yeah, thank you for sharing your, your trip with us. Oh, it's so much fun to hang out with you guys. And I love sharing the experience. So hopefully there will be more to come. Oh, uh, clearly there will be more to come. As of New Year's, there's going to be more to come on this. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. Roxy, thanks so much for joining us. People who are listening, if you like what we're doing with the Goo Pinnacle podcast, please do us a favor, subscribe, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word on Twitter, on Facebook. And most importantly, in real life, it's when athletes talk to athletes that people go, oh, this is a show that is from my tribe. So for the experts and athletes at Goo Energy, I'm Eldon Nelson. And I'm Yuri Housewell with Goo Energy Labs. And thank you for listening to Goo Energy Labs Pinnacle Podcast. Mm -hmm.